Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 8. Start in verse 19, and we'll actually go through chapter 9, verse 7, which can be found on page 559 in your pew Bibles, or 868 in the large print. This is written several hundred years before Jesus was born, and yet um, we see some of the ways God was preparing his people even then for Jesus' arrival. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. We thank you for all that you have given to us. We thank you for providing what we need. We thank you for preparing us in advance of what you know for what you know is coming. God, we pray that you would help us to listen to you, to come to know you, to trust you, to allow you to prepare us in those ways, that we would be ready for the days ahead, even when we don't know what they may bring. We pray that you would uh, open our ears and soften our hearts this morning, that we would hear your word, that we would hear your message for us, that we would be changed by your word and by your spirit in the people that you created us to be, in relationship with you, through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Isaiah chapter 8 starting verse 19 and going through 9, chapter 9, verse 7. Isaiah writes, When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Turning to John chapter 8. Verses 12 through 20. Our gospel lesson for this morning, we saw a bit about light and darkness in that last section, and here we have 
Jesus um, talking along the same lines. It's going to be found on page 868 in your pew Bibles or 1662 in the large print. John 8, 12 through 20. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him, because his hour had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning we find ourselves in that uh, strange transition time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, where we have uh, just celebrated all the things that we are thankful for and then immediately transition to making out our wish list for all the things that we wish to be thankful for later, or something like that. It is a strange time. Uh, and there seems to be a bit of a disconnect. I want to tell you a story of a guy who had a disconnect as we begin. This is, I may have told this before. I love this story. Uh, it's a guy I knew named John. He was a pastor I worked with years ago in Oklahoma. And the church where we were uh, was actually a polling place on election day. And so one election day, he walks through and he sees all the people working there and thinks, you know, I'm going to stop by and talk to them. And he goes over and he says to one of the ladies working there, excuse me, can you tell me if I'm a Republican or a Democrat? And she just looked at him wide-eyed. And he said, oh, not by looking. I mean, do, like, do you have it written down somewhere? <laughs> and she said, you don't know? <laughs> and he said, well, I think I'm registered as a Democrat, but I don't know that I've ever voted for a Democrat. So I think I might actually be a Republican. <laughs> In which case, is there, you know, I want to know if I need to change this. Anyway, I love that you don't know. But the idea here is that there was a disconnect between it, he realized, you know, what, whatever he was registered as didn't really matter if that's not how he was voting, right? If every time he went to vote, he's voting Republican, then it doesn't matter if he says he's Democrat. He's obviously not <laughs> at is core. And so here's where we are with this. Here's the disconnect. John, we're looking in 1 John chapter 1, starting verse 5, going through the first two verses of chapter 2, and John is writing to people who say they're Christians. That's who he's mainly writing to, is writing to people who are Christians. But he says there might be a disconnect. There shouldn't be a disconnect. If we say that we have fellowship with God, if we say that we are Christians, our lives ought to bear that out. This is something that we've seen over and over. We see this Jesus having these same kinds of conversations uh, with his disciples. We see him having these conversations with the Pharisees. We saw this all through uh, the book of 
James especially, that we just saw, that the way that we live should come directly out of what we say we believe. We see this also in places like the book of Romans, the book of Ephesians, where the whole first uh, 11 chapters of Romans, it's all, here are the things that are true. These are the things that God has done. This is the way the world really is. And then starting in chapter 12 of Romans, it's now, because of all that, here's how your life ought to reflect it. Here's how you ought to be living differently than everybody else because of these things. You switch to the book of Ephesians, same kind of thing. It's six chapters long. You have the first three chapters are all, this is what God has done in the world. This is how he has revealed himself. This is how he's made himself known. This is how he has come to us where we couldn't come to him on our own. And then chapters four through six says, now, because God has done this, here's how our lives should be different. Here's how we ought to be living differently. Here's how John says it. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is a familiar passage, at least part of this is. This is one that we read on a fairly regular basis just as we are preparing ourselves for our time of public confession together, corporate confession of sin. And we remind ourselves, if we claim to be without sin, we lie. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. But here's the message that John has for everyone. He starts, let's start back at the beginning. So this is the message we've heard from him. And this, I'm going to remind us of a couple things we talked about last week because a lot's happened this past week and we may have forgotten. One is when John is talking about the message we heard from him, he's talking about first-hand knowledge of Jesus. John is the disciple of Jesus who was close with Jesus, who walked with him, who talked with him, who ate with him, who leaned up against him, who touched him. John says, this is what we heard from him. We heard that God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. And by the way, when it says that God is light, that is not the same thing as saying that light is God. It is not having to do with what God consists of, as though he is um, made of photons or that sort of thing. It's kind of like when Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. We don't think that Jesus is confused. We think he's using a metaphor. (laughs) He's giving us an illustration that there's, we are the branches, he's the vine. We have to remain in him. That's where life comes from. When he says, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all, light is one of those concepts throughout the Bible that has, is just full, full of meaning. And I am not even going to begin to draw all of those meanings out, but I'll point out a few things of light and how it's used biblically. One is, it is the uh, first thing that we see created, right? God says, let there be light, and there is light. And one of the things we know about light is that it overcomes darkness. Think about this. Did you realize there is no such thing as darkness? 
Like, darkness does not exist as a thing. Like, if you have too much light, you just go, oh, you know what we need? We need a little bit more darkness. Let's just add some more darkness. You can't do that. You can do that in painting. If it's a little dark, you add, you know, add some black paint on there. It makes it darker. But in light, you can't just add more darkness. What you have to do, if you want it darker, is remove light, right? Because light is an actual thing. Darkness is just the absence of light. And what it's saying uh, here is that God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. Now think about this. God is what is real. He is what is true. And when we're looking at darkness, we're thinking about things that are opposed to him, that are away from him, that he will overcome. There's also a revealing, and we'll get more to that, there's also a revealing nature of light. Revealing. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever uh, follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When you flip on the switch, you can see around you. And you can walk easily and more clearly without stubbing your toe on the things your kids left in the hall. (laughs) Jesus claims to be revealing who God really is. But there's a revealing nature of God where... Have you ever heard the last last verse of the hymn, Amazing Grace? I don't believe it was actually written by John Newton. It was added later, but it's still a beautiful verse. It says, When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. You hear that? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise as when we first begun. Now, how you respond to that probably shows where your heart is in relationship or what you know about who God is. Here's what I mean. If you are doing something that you think is miserable, and somebody says, and guess what? In 10,000 years, you're going to be no closer to finishing than you are right now. Please know. And I may have told you this before as well. I had an aunt who actually felt this way about um, what it would be like to praise God forever. And she said, uh, she and my mom were talking many, many years ago, and she said, if in heaven all we, you know, we just have to praise God all the time, I, that just sounds boring. I don't know if I want to do that. And it just goes on and on and on. That's more of that, more of that. Which made my mom very sad. I said, oh, I don't want her to not want to go to heaven. <laughs> and so she went home and she prayed about it. You know, how do I respond? The next day she came back, and I share this because I think what she said is just right on. She said, you know how we go every year, the 4th of July, and we watch the fireworks? And there was a big uh, production that they'd had. It was a stadium, and uh, we'd go to a local college football stadium, and they'd do the big fireworks show. And so there were thousands of people there watching the fireworks. And she said, you know how we go there every year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, you know when the fireworks go off? And we all say, ooh, and awe as they explode. Who's making you do that? Nobody's making you do that. Nobody's making any of the people do that, but we're all doing that because we're overcome with the wonder and the awe of the spectacle. And it says... It doesn't say that we're going to be made to worship God forever. It's going to say, it says that that's what we're going to be doing, is worshiping God forever, because the more that we come to know him. See, when it says that God is light and in him, there is no darkness at all, it means he has nothing to hide. 
He is pure through and through. He is perfect in his wisdom and his justice and his mercy and his compassion and his love and his forgiveness and his holiness and his righteousness and everything that we come to know about him. The more we get to know him, the more beautiful that we see that he is. And we can go on and on and on discovering more and more about just how perfect he is. And the more we uh, see God for who he really is, the more we want to praise him and the more beautiful he seems and the more, uh, yeah, the more excited we are and the more we just are overcome with ooing and awing. <laughs> as we are struck with awe and wonder in the presence of God. Do you have that vision? Do you have that vision of coming to know God in this way? Of dealing with a God who is this holy and righteous and pure? Because here's the second part of that revealing light. It doesn't just reveal who God is, but it also reveals who we are. There's a comparison that happens here. Here's try to use a silly illustration to see if this helps make the point. We like to compare ourselves to each other. And the reason we like to compare ourselves to each other, first of all, is because it's easier. It's an easier comparison of visuals right there in front of us. But another reason we like to compare ourselves to each other is because there's a sense in in which I might win if I compare myself to somebody else. And so it's it's like building... um, if I were to build a tower out of Legos, and I went to the elementary school, and we're all building towers out of Legos, but I build the best tower because, well, I've got a bit more Lego experience than these elementary school kids. And so I build a big tower out of Legos, and I'm like, hey, look at this. And everybody's like, wow, you're so awesome. I'm like, you're right, I'm awesome. I build a big Lego tower. I'm the best builder ever. And then, and then we hear rumor that there may be a better tower in the world. And so I actually take my Lego tower to New York City, and I set it down in front of the Empire State Building, and I step back and I take a look. Ugh. Mine doesn't look so good. And then they actually take me for a tour inside, and I start experiencing all the things inside the Empire State Building. And I see, you know what? The doors and windows here actually work. <laughs> there, are, there are staircases, and there are elevators, and there are working lights and plumbing and the electrical everything the details here are amazing and it just seems to go on and on and on and then I go back out and after I've been marveling at this amazing tower I go back out and I look at my Lego tower how's that look now (laughs) not so impressive now here's the real point though we see that comparison we see that when we look at God not only does it reveal who he is and his wonderful amazing qualities but then when we look back at ourselves we go oh maybe I'm not so impressive after all But then what do we do with that, right? So what if I take my Lego tower back to the elementary school and they say, how was that tower? I say, oh, it was pretty good. And they say, and what about your tower? How is it? And you go, oh, mine's still among the best. (laughs) No. This is what John is saying. He's saying if if we realize that God is light, in him there is no darkness at all, if we claim to have fellowship with him, if we claim that we actually are coming to know him for who he really is, but then we live like we're not, if we're walking in the darkness, if we're living just like everybody else who's never come to know God at all, then we're lying. We haven't really come to know him. Not really. We haven't ever really been moved by the wonders of who he is and what he's done for us. If you were to, if you were to see on the forecast that, oh, this morning it looks like it's going to be 12 degrees and freezing rain. Better get dressed in shorts and a t-shirt and go out to mow the lawn. No. 
You're not walking in the light of the truth that has been revealed to you. We get that. The question is, do we do the same thing with God? Do we come to a worship service? Do we, have, do we sing God's praises and then do we walk out and live Monday through Saturday the same way that everybody else does, chasing after the same, um, the same desires, responding uh, and reacting to our fears and anxieties in the same way as the rest of the world? How do we live? How do we live? Is it not out of what we know about who God is and what he's done for us? Out of the fellowship that we have with him. And this is what he says. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Why do we have to bring sin into this? Wouldn't it be enough just to say God is wonderful and we should just all acknowledge that God is wonderful and live like God is wonderful? Excuse me. And that be good enough? No. Because one of the things that the Bible has been telling us from the very beginning is we're not wonderful. We were created good. But from the very beginning, something, as C.S. Lewis puts it, something central and central part of us was twisted and bent. And we can't straighten it back out. And this is our nature of sin that is constantly turning us away from God and it's as natural to us as breathing itself. To turn away from God. To turn away from God. So what do we do with that? He said, first of all, just before he even introduces the concept of sin, did you notice he already mentioned the blood of Jesus? Before he even gets to sin? That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Before we face our sin, we're reminded of our Savior. But then he goes on to talk about those who say, yeah, 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 I get it, that sin is a problem for some people. (laughs) But not me. I'm a pretty good guy. I got it all worked out. I can do this on my own. I don't need anybody else. Yes, I understand there is a God, and that's wonderful, but I don't need him. Because there's nothing wrong with me. And he says, listen, if we claim to be without sin... If we say that we don't need a Savior, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. And it doesn't take much, by the way. It doesn't take much to realize that we do have a problem with sin. That it does break our relationship with God. It does break our relationship with each other. And what it takes is simply what we talked about earlier. Not comparing ourselves to each other. We can compare ourselves, find other people, and say, well, I'm certainly better than (laughs) so-and-so. So I see how they might have a problem. I don't. But it's when we compare ourselves to God, who is holy and righteous and pure, we compare ourselves to him, we see pretty quickly where the problem lies. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I'm going to come back to that. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And I see this kind of repetition of the same idea. If we say that we don't have a problem with sin, that we're not sinning, one, we're deceiving ourselves, but two, we're making God out to be a liar. How so? Because from the beginning, God has been telling us, you have a problem with sin. And you can't fix it on your own. And that is why I am going to send someone. That is why I am going to come to you to fix this problem of sin that you have. To fix you from the inside out. And when we say no, I don't need that. Then either God is lying or we're lying. And John says, which is it? (laughs) You're making God out to be the liar. 
but we know that's not true. Because we do all have a problem with sin. But in uh, ancient writing, one of the devices they would have in literature is you have the structure of parallelism, and sometimes you have actually something in between the parallels. And what's in between is actually the most important thing. It's what's being highlighted. So what is it that came between these two parallels of if we say we're not sinning, we're lying and making God a liar? What is it that comes in between that? It's the most important part. If we confess our sins, in other words, if we admit that we do have sin, that we do have sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the important thing. Because what this is all about is not about... um, It's not about finding out that we have sin so that we can feel bad about ourselves. No. This is the other aspect of light, that revealing nature of light, that it's not just there to reveal that God is good and we are not, but it's to reveal where the problem is in us, that it can be fixed, that it can be healed. Sometimes we go to God and we act in church, kind of like somebody who goes to the doctor who has a softball-sized lump coming out of their hip. And they go to the doctor. And the doctor takes their blood pressure and says, sounds good. They shine the light in their mouth. Looks good. Anything else going on? Nope. Anything else you want me to check out? Nope. Why, why would you do that? <laughs> no, if you had something like that, you'd surely be saying to the doctor, I, actually, yes, I want you to shine that light, not here, right here. <laughs> I got something here that needs to be looked at. And why is it that you want the doctor to look at that? Not so he can look at it and, you know, like a, a mean girl in middle school or something saying, ha ha, look at that. See you later. And you just walk out of his office. I feel horrible about myself now. Nobody else has one of these. Now I've got one. No, that's not why you go to the doctor. If you've been to middle school, you understand. Um, You go to the doctor and you show him these things that you say, this is wrong, because you don't want it there either. Right? You show it to him because you want him to fix it, make it better, make me right, make me whole again. When the Bible talks about our sin problem, it doesn't say that to make us feel bad, that we go and look at this Empire State Building and go back and look at our little tower and go, oh, poor me, I'm miserable, I look like this. It's because it's saying there's something more that we are called to. A fellowship with this holy God. A sharing in the light. This is the other thing that I was going to bring out that we talked about last week. This fellowship is not just hanging out together. It's not just sharing a meal together. It's actually sharing life together. And that's not just me sharing my life with you or you with me. It's all of us together sharing in the life of Jesus Christ. Sharing that resurrection life that overcomes everything else. And this is where... uh, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He takes it away. He fixes it. He makes it right again, that we can have fellowship with God, that we can have fellowship with each other, that we can have this right relationship again. Chapter 2. Don't worry, there's only two more verses. Sounds like I'm starting a whole other chapter. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. I write this to you so that you will not sin. He says, my dear children. We'll get into this later in this letter. He talks about that a lot. But I do want to point out, when I, the illustration of the Lego tower, the other tower, those are both works of creation. 
And the Lego Tower really doesn't have much hope of growing into an Empire State Building, does it? But children do grow into adults. And when, uh, when it says we are not just creations of God, but that he has actually adopted us as his children, that we are those who grow up into his own likeness. And so this is where he says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. In other words, the same way that God is holy and perfect and wonderful in all these ways, this is how we ought to be as well. Is that setting the bar pretty high? That's setting the bar really high. This is how our lives ought to be. But the response that we might have to that is to say, uh, because if we keep the bar low, that's easy to do. Say, well, I guess nobody's perfect, so why even try? He says, no, no, no. The bar is up here. It's really high. This is what we ought to be shooting for, is this life with God and actually growing up into him to where we are perfect. No more sin. But then the other response to that is, well, if the bar is that high, I'll never reach it, and so why even try? Just give up in despair. Here's where the good news comes in. This good news of hope and thankfulness. He says, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you know what this is saying? This is saying our focus should still be on God, that we should still be uh, in him and being walking in the light of the truth of what he has revealed about who he is and who we are, and growing up into him, that we would not sin. But we know we still do sin. He says, but when we do, rather than giving up in despair and saying, there I go again, he says, let me remind you what we have. Let me remind you of some of the truth that's been revealed. We have Jesus Christ, who's the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice. This is why it says that God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful. He's the one who sent his son, just like he promised. But he's also just, which means he's not going to punish Jesus for your sins and then still hold you accountable for them. Do you understand what that means? Jesus Christ is our advocate. He's the righteous one. He's the one who got it right. He's the one who died for us and was raised again. And he's the one who is saying, when we say to God, I've blown it again. I went away from you again in this area, this area, this area. Here's what I've done. Will you forgive me? You can even just imagine if God were to say, and why should I do that? Do you know the answer? I don't think he'd ever say that. Do you know why? You know what the answer would be? Not, well, because I'm going to try harder. No. Why should he forgive you? That's where we have Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is our advocate, who says, yep, I paid for that one too. I paid for that one too. And that one. And that one. And that one. That his death was sufficient for all of it. This is where John says, not just for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, let me ask you this. Personalize this. If Jesus' death is sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world, do you think there's something that you have in your life where you say, well, I, I know that he could cover the sins of everybody in the whole entire world, but no, he couldn't cover what I've done, not this time? You think so? Not at all. Jesus' death is sufficient. He paid the penalty for your sin that you could have 
fellowship with God through Jesus, that we could share in the resurrection life of Jesus even now and going on to forever where we continually come to know God and love him more and trust him more in everything. That when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, no less days to sing God's praise when we first begun. And we won't want to stop because we'll just be getting started seeing how wonderful he is. This is the hope that we have. And when we talk about biblical hope, we're not just saying, I sure hope it doesn't rain tomorrow or, it or that it does rain tomorrow. But we're talking about biblical hope, which is the confidence that we have that God is going to fulfill his promises. He's faithful. This is what he says is coming, that there will be a day where we don't have to deal with the problem of sin anymore. This is the hope that we have in Jesus. But it's also certainly a reason for us to give thanks. We may have had a lot of uh, things on our minds this week of everything that we've been thankful for that God has given to us. But let us never forget to thank God for what he has given to us in Jesus Christ, that we would have fellowship with him and with each other now and forever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.